Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Um, Today, if you're new with us, if you're a guest here, thank you for being here. We're in week three of a new series that we started uh, two weeks ago. It's called Hold Fast. We're looking at seven specific letters to seven specific churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two and three. And so far we've looked at the church of the letter to the church of Ephesus, and we looked at the letter to the church of Smyrna, and today we're looking at this letter to the church in Pergamum. And what I want to start out with today is telling you about one of my favorite TV shows. Not one of my favorite TV shows, but an episode in one of my favorite TV shows that's no longer on the air Makes me sad when I think about it. It's called Parks and Recreation. Uh, Maybe some of you have enjoyed that. I heard a yes. Fantastic. You can can wave that hand. Just make sure you also amen as we read God's word. Um, I'm just just kidding. Um, But there's this episode in Parks and Recreation. And in Parks and Recreation, if you aren't familiar with it, it's about a Parks and Recreation um, office in, in this little town of Pawnee. There's this episode that I really love. It's called The Camel. And essentially what happens in this episode is each um, division in the city, um, uh, gosh, in City Hall, you know, there's different, there's like the firefighters, we've got uh, the Parks and Rec, we've got the library systems, all those. Anyway, they're going to put up a new mural in City Hall. And each area has a chance to put together a mural, and the winning mural will get put up. And so the Parks and Rec people, they start to work on this. And what starts out is a very focused, very dialed-in, together mural ends up being a disaster. Um, essentially, Leslie, the main character in this, she goes to one of the other workers in the office, and, and she shows him this mural, and he says, oh, you made a camel. She's like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, the, well, that's, that's a group of people essentially coming together to try to create a horse. And what happens is you get a camel because you try to compromise so that everybody's happy with the final product. And so you just have this disaster of a mural that looks horrible because they were trying to please everyone. Everyone had a piece in this. Now today, um, what we're going to be looking at is this idea of compromise. And compromise can be a tricky thing because in some areas of our life, compromise is a really good thing. Think about relationships that you have. We compromise. This is seen as a very selfless thing. I want this. You want this. I'm going to compromise. I'm going to come over here. You're going to come over here and we're going to kind of meet in the middle or we're going to compromise on some things. It can be very selfless. But in other areas of life, it can be very dangerous. It's not seen as a good thing. It can be sort of this slow burn that over time in our life can turn into a wildfire where we thought that we were simply being flexible on some things, but where we end up compromising things like our standards, our values, our our health, even our beliefs. And so how does this happen? And why is it so important that we actually take time to stop and reflect on where our life, our faith, and compromise meet And we don't just ignore it and blow past it. Jesus answers that question very clearly for us in Revelation 2, the verses that you just heard read in his letter to the church of Pergamum. So let's take a look at that this morning. If you want to, you can turn there, um, or it's going to be right behind me on the screen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We're going to start right off in verse 12, so we'll jump in. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
So John starts off this letter as he did most. He gives this attribute. He talks about this trait of Christ that he saw in this vision that God gave him. And the one that he mentions here is he says, the words of whom has the sharp two-edged sword. Why is the two-edged sword important in this context? Well, what we see in Hebrews, if you remember in the New Testament as well, 4.12, it says this, for the, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the vision of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thought and intentions of the heart. The one who has this two-edged sword, meaning the one who has the words of truth, the word of God. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? He was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. If you look back at that, how did Jesus fight off Satan? How did he combat these attacks when Satan would come and tempt him? It wasn't with a weapon that was forged by a blacksmith in the town. It wasn't anything like that. No, Jesus fought off Satan with what? The word of God, this two-edged sword, this weapon that is more powerful than we oftentimes even realize or even think about. John is saying, hey, for you, Pergamum, here's what you need to understand. This is the one, the one who has the words, the words of him who has this sharp two-edged sword, who has these words of truth. Why is this important for this church? Why does he highlight this trait for Pergamum? Because they had become compromised and they were vulnerable. They needed to be reminded of how important it is to hold on to God's word no matter what. To hold on, know God's word, know him, stand firm no matter what. We already know there were persecutions going on in all of these churches. The Roman Empire, they weren't a fan of Christians at this time at all. And so God says, hey, He says, let me remind you. Let me remind you of how important this is because your enemy is real and your enemy is deceptive. Now, before we go any further, it's important for us as a church here in Green Lake today not to look at this and say, well, this was for this church in Pergamum. This probably isn't for me. We're probably good. No, no, no. This this letter right here, it actually hits home pretty hard. You're going to see how this is for us today, especially in the city of Seattle. Something that we should make note of. Something that we should look at in depth. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So to the church of Ephesus, it says, I know your works. To the church of Smyrna, he says, I know your affliction, your poverty. And now to the church of Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. So this is pretty important. The church of Pergamum or Pergamum, the city of Pergamum was essentially 50 miles northeast of Smyrna. And it wasn't as large as Ephesus and it wasn't nearly as large as Smyrna. But here's what this city had that the other cities didn't have. This is where the Roman Empire met to make decisions. It's pretty important. This was the center cog of their decision making. The same Roman Empire that were burning Christians alive. Right? And so, if you think about it like this, you can think of Ephesus sort of like New York City. You can think of Smyrna sort of like Chicago. And if you look at Pergamum, it's sort of like Washington, D.C., where big decisions are made. And God knows that, and he points it out here. He's saying, essentially, this is where Rome's operation is. It's the seat of Satan. This city was literally the center of satanic worship in Asia. They even had a throne where emperor worship was practiced. That's why it says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Talk about temptation to move away from what you believe. Talk about pressure. And pressure breeds compromise. 
or at least the temptation to compromise. This feeling of the walls closing in, maybe I need to move from where I was, maybe I'm not as safe here as I think I am, maybe I need to give in a little here, give in a little there so that nothing bad happens, this pressure that's coming in. You can imagine this pressure coming in on the church in Pergamon when the Roman Empire has basically set up shop there. But even in the midst of all of this, they're still being faithful in two areas. Check this out. It says, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So two areas. One, they held fast to Christ's name. They were faithful to uphold his name. They didn't give in or declare that Caesar is Lord as as many had. Instead, they remained faithful to his name. They at least said the right thing. I'm a Christ follower. We hold the Christ. We don't hold the Caesar. And secondly, they held fast to their faith in Christ. It wasn't the false gods that they were looking to for salvation. They weren't worshiping false gods and and had set up these thrones for them. They, They weren't doing that. It was through Christ, by faith, by grace. And it says that they continued, even in the worst of times, even as persecution was there, they continued. Even when Antipas was martyred because of his faithfulness, they continued to uphold the name of Christ. These are good things. These are things to be commended for as a church. And so this is the good news. Hey, you've done a good job in this area, but here's here's the bad news, or here's some things that we need to talk about. Here's Here's the family conversation, right? Here's like, hey, come over and sit down in the living room. Let's have this conversation, real talk. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Real quick, um, when you were in school, did you ever accidentally walk into a class that you weren't supposed to be in? I did this. Um, I remember specifically in eighth grade, the first day of school, I walked into an advanced Spanish class. And here's the problem. I hadn't had beginning Spanish. And I sat down and I remember, I remember the teacher starting off the class, speaking in Spanish, no English, calling on me, and me just looking like a deer in headlights. I promise you, because I can see her face, so it obviously scarred me, she yelled at me at least three times. She was so angry with me for not being able to respond to her in Spanish until we both realized the same thing. I was not supposed to be in this class, right? Here's the deal. If you aren't familiar with the Old Testament, Revelation is not going to make a ton of sense to you. You're going to look at it and be like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? This talk of Balaam and Balak and and this stone and new names and manna and all of these things, like how, how does that go together? So just as a side note, read the Old Testament. Make note. When you read Revelation, when you read these letters, reference the Old Testament. Look back at it. It's so important to understanding the richness of God's word and what it really means here. We aren't just New Testament people. We're the whole Bible people. And so he says this, and we do. We reference the Old Testament here. Here's the deal. So Balaam, what's the deal with Balaam? Who is this, right? He was a medium. He was a spiritualist. Essentially, he would come along and he would say, hey, here's what's going to happen, or I can speak these words. I commune with God. God speaks to me, and, and, I'll, and I'll share with you what he said. This is what he did. Well, Balak, this king, he came along, and, and what he heard is that the Israelites, let me, let me just reference this here, he heard that the Israelites were coming, and he didn't want to be defeated like others had, and so he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. 
He said, hey, I want you to curse the Israelites. But here's what Balaam says. He says, I'm not going to speak anything or do anything that isn't directly from God. And for a time, he doesn't. Balak wants him to curse the Israelites three times, but three times God comes and he actually ends up blessing the Israelites. It's pretty amazing. And then there's this whole story of a talking donkey, not from the movie Shrek, but really in the Bible, and angels, and we aren't going to get into all that, but it's just a little taste of why you should go back and read Numbers 22 through 24. But Balaam, he still has a wicked heart. Even though God is speaking to him, and for a while he speaks truth, and he doesn't curse the Israelites, but he blesses them, here's the deal. Balaam, when he finally realizes he isn't going to be rewarded, or essentially isn't going to be paid, he finally gives in a little. He tells the king, Balak, how to get to the Israelites. He says, hey, here's how you get to them. Here's how you defeat them, with essentially pagan rituals. They're going to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols, and they'll, take pay, and they'll take, place in, take part in sexual immorality, and that's how you get to them. You see this in Numbers 31. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in this incident of Peor, so that the plague came upon, upon the congregation of the Lord. So on his way out, he says, hey, here's how you get to them. You, idol meat and sexual immorality, if you, if you want to defeat them, if you want you know, God to come and, and curse them. Like Balaam, he really wanted to praise the men. That's what it ended up being. These are the people in the church that Jesus is talking about here. These are the people. They wanted the Christians to like them, but they also wanted the secular world to like them. And this never works out well. It just doesn't go well. Not only were there some in the church that were holding to these beliefs, so they were taking part in in eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, and they were being sexually immoral, but it it also says here that some of you hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. If you remember back in the church of Ephesus, these were guys who looked the part. False teachers who came in, and they looked the part. They upheld the name of Christ, but they wanted to straddle the fence. They wanted a little Christianity, and they wanted a little bit of the world. They taught that as Christians, you could pretty much do whatever you want, because after all, God will forgive you. Such a dangerous lie. They said that it's your flesh that sinned, and so your spirit is safe. Here's what's important to understand here. These were not people or teachers who were struggling with sin, who were wrestling against sin. I don't want you to feel condemned this morning and shamed this morning if you're like, I wrestle and I struggle with sexual immorality, right? I've got things in my life that I wrestle and struggle with. No, no, no. These were not people who were wrestling with these sins. These were people who no longer even saw them as sin. They were just fully giving in to them. They had accepted them. They had become compromised. They essentially, and hear this, they destroyed the need for holiness and made salvation nothing more than a formula to follow. Now, the main point here of this passage is not don't eat idle meat and don't commit sexual immorality. Although, if somebody comes to your door and they offer you meat that's been sacrificed to some weird idol, don't eat it. I don't think that's happening anytime soon here in Seattle. But tomorrow, if somebody knocks on your door, they got a box full of idle meat, turn them away. We all agree on that, right? And at the same time, God doesn't want you to be sexually immoral. He doesn't want you to sleep around. He loves you too much for that, so don't do that either. But there's a bigger umbrella here. There's a bigger point that God's making here as he says this. The main point is this. Be careful of anything or anyone who would lead you to compromise your faith. Be careful. Be on guard of anyone 
or anything that would lead you to compromise your faith, that would lead you to compromise my word, that would lead you to compromise the truth of the gospel. You see, ultimately for this church, the persecution that they were facing, it hadn't sanctified them, it hadn't perfected them, it caused them to give in a little here and a little there. They considered themselves Christians, but they were not the church that God wanted them to be. They were compromising their doctrine, and they were compromising the need to pursue holiness. This church upheld the name of Christ and faith in Christ, but compromised its commitment to Christ. The church told the truth with its lips, but lied with its life. They looked the part, but deep down, deep down, Jesus wasn't their Lord. They had another Lord. There were people in this church. And here's what I want us to say. Take a, take a minute here. We're going to apply this. We're going to hit home. And here's what I meant by this hits us. This is our city. This is our city. Here's what I mean by this. We live in a city that is known for the acceptance of anything and everything, compromising for anyone and everyone. We are not a city that tells anyone no. We are not a city that steps on toes. We are a city that is so fluid and flexible in some ways, is that good? Absolutely. But in some ways, is it incredibly dangerous, especially as we apply this to our faith? Absolutely. What do I even mean by this? If you just drive around this city, this is one of the first things I noticed when we moved here seven years ago. I don't know if you noticed this. There's no HOAs here in Seattle. What I mean by this is you will see some of the wildest homes, Right? built next to each other. Like, none of it makes sense. Like, I remember driving on I-5 and seeing a pink home off the side of the road with the mural of a woman on it, like, day one. I was like, whoa. Like, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna say anything about that? And it's like, no, 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 you can build whatever you want. You can make it look however you want. You can paint it however you want. It, 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 it's kind of this microcosm. It's this picture of our city. Do whatever you want. Be whoever you want. Nobody's gonna tell you no. Nobody's gonna step on toes. We want to be accepting of everything. It, you know, that's, that's who we are. And so when it comes to our faith, when it comes to being Christ followers, when it comes to saying, hey, I actually believe in this. I actually believe that this is the word of truth. I actually believe that everything that's said in here is true. It is not easy. If you just need to hear that this morning, it's not easy. And we're all in this together. For the sake of being accepted, for the sake of fitting in, for the sake of not upsetting anyone, being able to play church on one hand, culture on the other hand, we will be tempted to water down the gospel with ideas, with beliefs, with personal choices that make it easier, that make us more likable, that make Christianity more palatable, and prevent us from actually having to stand firm anywhere because we don't need to stand firm. Instead, we can move anytime that it's convenient to us or politically correct. You know, only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus? Mm, we probably need to budge on that because everybody's not going to like that. That's pretty exclusive. Sexual purity? Nobody does that anymore. That's old school. We just need to let the reins loose on that. There's no way we're going to make headway if we stick with that one. I lay down my life. I let Jesus be Lord. Nobody's giving up power. Shoot, this is a city where you try to get as much power as you can. We definitely don't want to be about that. How about we just say a prayer, we do what we want to do, and we hope it all works out in the end? That the Bible is 100% authoritative, that it's without error, that there's absolute truth? Mm. 
We might want to hesitate from that because in the future we might need to be able to adapt and we might want to pick and choose passages that work out well that don't offend this person and so we'll kind of just pull that out of the Bible or we'll adjust it, right? Because it'll be a little bit easier. And that whole moderation thing in the Bible, like do everything in moderation, that kind of makes me feel bad sometimes. So I want to discard that too. I'm going to put that off to the side because I, you know, I really like getting wasted and I really like doing all of these things over here and I don't want to feel bad about it. And so if I just discard that or if I just pull that page out of the Bible then maybe everything will be good. This is a real temptation for us, right? This is a huge temptation in our city. That we would compromise our faith, that we would compromise our beliefs. I'm just guessing here, but I would say this is 80 or 85% of the churches in Seattle. And that's not to be offensive to Seattle, but if you walk in a lot of churches today and you sit down and listen, I almost guarantee you, you will walk out not knowing what that church believes. Because the Bible is not the ultimate authority. You know what the ultimate authority is? Not offending anyone. Can we just agree for a minute that Christianity, it's the, the Bible, that the gospel, it's offensive. It's never going to be politically correct, right? And that doesn't mean that we go out on the corner as the people do down at CenturyLink and we hold up signs and we shame people. That's not it, right? We're called to love one another. We're called to love those who don't even believe the same thing that we believe. But when it comes down to it and somebody puts us to it and they say, what do you believe? Do we stand with God's word and the gospel or do we not? There's no straddling the fence on this. There's no have it both ways. Where do we stand? That's really the question that we're met with here. In its purest form, the gospel, this exclusivity of Christ, it's incredibly offensive, but also in its purest form, these words have the power to bring dead men back to life. Yes. And so is this what we really believe and what we're willing to hold to? Jesus says for this church and and maybe for us too, therefore repent. Hey, I see you. I see what's going on here. I see what's coming to your church. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So if you're saying, and a lot of people I'm sure would have been saying even in this time, is this really big of a deal? What's the worst that's going to happen You really want to hear this. Jesus answers with this sobering reality. The worst that can happen is that you suffer the same punishment as Satan himself. It's like, yikes, really? For compromising on a few things? Like we're going to suffer the same punishment? Well, here's the deal. When you start compromising on a few things and and you start changing up things and you start taking and replacing and, and you don't stand over here anymore, instead you've kind of moved over, over here, you run the danger of really diminishing this faith in Christ, and you no longer have this faith in Christ. You have a man-made religion. Here's sort of the big idea, if you want to take it away, and it's going to be up on the screen here too, but, you know, when it comes to Christ and his word, when you compromise anything, you risk losing everything. That's really a big point here. When it comes to your relationship with Christ, when it comes to his word, when you compromise anything, you risk losing everything, because you no longer have a pure faith in Christ. That's why this warning is so sobering, why it kind of hits you in the face, but in a really loving way. To diminish the gospel, to diminish the pursuit of holiness, this isn't a real faith in Christ. And why is holiness, we've said this a few times, but why is holiness such important, so important? Why is it important to pursue holiness? Why is that a big deal? Well, if you really want to know why, all you have to do, do this later, I'm just going to hit a couple things here, but read 2 Peter. If you don't know why holiness is important, read 2 Peter. Here's real quick. Several motivations for holiness. 20. Here it goes, real quick. This is all found in 1 Peter. 
We pursue holiness that we might become partakers of the divine nature, become more like Christ. We make every effort to grow in godliness because God has already set us free from corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desire. We grow in grace so that we will not be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pursue Christ-like character so we will not be blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. We work hard at holiness in order to make our calling and election sure so that we will not fall. It doesn't mean you have to work. It doesn't mean you're working for salvation. It It means because you've been saved, because Christ has saved you, he's redeemed you, we pursue holiness. We practice these godly qualities so that we will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. We pursue godliness because Jesus is coming back again in great power and we'll know this to be true because the glory revealed of the Mount of Transfiguration, because the prophecy of Scripture. We walk in obedience to Christ because those who wander in sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. That's what Revelation says right here. We're serious about holiness because we believe God knows how to judge the wicked and save the righteous. We turn from ungodliness because those who revel in sin are ugly blots and blemishes, irrational animals, unsteady souls, and accursed children. That's um, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. I know that one probably, you're like, whoa, irrational animals. We pursue holiness because sin never delivers on its promises. We pursue holiness because those who live in their sin, again, are like those returning to slavery, returning to the mire, returning to the vomit. We must remember to be holy so that we will not be drawn away by those scoffers who come in the last days following their own sinful desires. We make every effort to be godly because the world will not always continue as it does now. The heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. We must take Christ-likeness seriously because... Now, because we do not know when the Lord will return, we pursue holiness because all of the works will be exposed on the last day. We pursue holiness because whatever we live for in this life will be burned up and dissolved. We strive to walk in obedience and repentance because in doing so, we may hasten to the day of God coming. We live in righteousness now because we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell forever. We pursue godliness so that in Christ, we might be glorified both now and to the day of eternity. If you wonder why holiness is important, why it's a big deal, there you have it. Read Second Peter. Essentially, when we pursue holiness, it reminds us that we're not only being saved from something, but we're being saved to something. A day when we see Jesus face to face, when we're with him and it's a party, that there's a day coming, especially for this church that was being persecuted and all of these churches and the pressure coming in, he's saying, stand firm, pursue holiness, stand in my truth. I know it's not popular. I know it's not cool. I know people are going to call you names. I know some people are going to walk away from you, but it's worth it because I'm offering you life, eternal life, not things that are going to be burned up when this world ends. I'm offering you a seat at the table. I'm offering you entrance into the family. I'm going to give you a new name, sons, daughters. This is what Jesus offers for those who stand firm because Jesus has already conquered. And so essentially what he's saying here is that you need to repent. There's still hope. You don't have to just stay where you are. And I love this repentance, this immediate, op- excuse me, this immediate opportunity to restore this relationship. That God isn't saying, hey, you have to work it off. Hey, I'm going to keep you at a distance for a while. He's saying, no, turn away, repent turn from those things. Hey, where you've been compromising, stop. Come back to my word. Where you've been giving in, where you've been kind of riding the fence, stop. Come back to my truth. And the beauty is, is Jesus is always going to be there to accept you as long as there's life. But as you saw here, we don't know the days in front of us. It's important not to set this off to the side. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, take this seriously. It's not a joke. 
He finishes, those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except for the one who receives it. All right, this is another Old Testament thing. So far, Christ has promised that those who conquer, those in Christ, will eat from the tree of life, will be given the crown of life, will be protected from the second death, and now he says, those who are in Christ, those who stand firm, will be given some of the hidden manna, given a white stone with a new name. In Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, God promises manna to his people in the wilderness as they're heading toward the promised land. This is how he sustains them. But rather than continuing to eat this manna, God's people were tricked by Balaam, right? We looked at that. Into eating meat sacrificed to idols. They were tempted with a false manna. Instead of continuing to eat from this true manna, they decided to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. And God says, I have a hidden manna. Who is this hidden manna? What is this hidden manna? The hidden manna is Jesus. Jesus. The manna that came down from heaven in Exodus is a foreshadowing of Jesus who came to give life to all of those who would accept him. To those who would stand firm in their faith, that would stand firm in Christ, it says they will be rewarded with participation in the end time feast. This manna that's currently hidden. It's amazing. There's a feast coming. For true believers, no matter what you face in your life, no matter how many family members have, man, maybe there's been some difficulties, some real challenges. Maybe you're the only Christian at work and it's really tough. Maybe the only Christian in your family and it's really tough. Maybe it's just been difficult. Maybe there's a lot of pain in your past. Maybe there's a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you just stand firm with me, we're going to feast. There's a new day coming. And you've got a seat at the table. He says, not only that, not only am I going to give you Christ, not only you'll have him, this hidden manna, but you'll also have a new name written on this stone. I love this, that every true believer, that they're given a new name, they were given new character, a new righteousness that will last forever. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, therefore, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. No matter your past, no matter your pains, no matter your wounds, all of it, Jesus is willing to take anyone who will come humbly with open hands to him, and he will give them this manna. He will give them himself, Jesus, the bread of life. This is amazing. Where do we go with this? Well, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is where it starts. Maybe you've believed this lie. Maybe you've believed a lie that says, I have too much in my past, there's way too much that I've done. You know, when it talks about sexual immorality and when it talks about, you know, taking part in these things that have nothing to do with God, like, that's my past. That's where I've been my whole life. Here's the beauty. You don't have to work that off. God's not doing this whole indentured servant thing. He says, repent, just come to me. I'll take all of it. I'll take all of your past and I'll give you a new future. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Anyone, anyone, that would be willing to accept this, that would be willing to trust in him, that would be willing to place their faith in Jesus. And so if that's you today, maybe, maybe it's time to think about the things that have sort of clouded your ideas about Christianity, have sort of clouded your ideas about Jesus. Maybe the compromises are things that have come in that have made you think, like, I don't know if this is for me. Maybe it's time to kind of push those to the side and say, who really is Jesus and what is he really offering? The word of God tells us that Jesus is the son of God. And he is the only one that can offer you life eternal. And the beauty is he does this through grace. If you'll place your faith in him, by his grace, you can become 
a son and daughter of the king who's already conquered. Maybe that's you today. For the rest of us, for the church here in Seattle, with these pressures and temptations, where do we go today? What do we do today? Um, You've probably heard of this woman, um, Marie Kondo, right? Yeah. She wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which I have not read and I will not read. Um, To my wife's dismay. Uh, She also has a Netflix series if you want to watch that. What does this have to do with us wrapping up? Um, I was thinking about that show today and she's all about like decluttering and like looking at these things that you have and saying like, does this give me joy and like getting rid of things. But I was thinking about this in our, in our faith. Stick with me here for a second. But if you think of your faith, think about it, just think about it like a room for a second. You're sitting in that room and everything's well organized. You've got God's word there, his ultimate authority, and it's sitting there and it's not tarnished. And you've got the gospel there through Christ alone, through faith alone, grace alone, right? Just think for a minute, in your life, what other things have made their way in? There are probably a few. What other things have made their way in to that room that have sort of junked it up? What compromises? What things have made their way in that you've been okay with up until now, but you're like, this has to stop? This isn't what God wants. This isn't what his word says is right. Pursuing holiness, that's what he wants from me. It's time to really start looking at everything else that's made its way. And what compromises are you living with right now when it comes to your faith? What things are you not quite standing firm on? Maybe you've given in a little bit because you're like, you know, everybody doesn't believe this, and I don't know that I really want to face those who don't. And so maybe it's the whole Jesus is the only way thing. Maybe you've budged a little bit on that, and you're like, well, I still believe it, but, you know, if somebody asks me about it, I'm going to... No, no, no. Maybe it's time to say, hey, this is a compromise and this needs to get tossed out. Think about it. What are those things that have made their way in? What things do you need to look at with sober mind, sober heart, and say, this isn't what Jesus wants? This isn't what he wants for me. Here's what I want us to do just take one minute, just silence. The beauty here is that Jesus calls us to repent this gift. And so let's take a minute and let's do that. Confess and repent. Seriously. If there are things that are coming to mind right now, if there are compromises that have been made, if there are things you're taking part in that you know you shouldn't, that God doesn't want for you, if there's, there's areas, maybe even God's word, where you've just been like, you know what, I really haven't stood firm in that, I really kind of teetered, take a minute, think about those things, let them come to your mind, let the Holy Spirit bring those up, confess those things to Christ, repent from those things, and let's walk anew. Take a minute, take a minute. When we give those things up, when we give up a compromised faith, we get what we've really needed all along, what our heart longs for. We get a Savior that isn't compromised, that's never been compromised. We get a Savior, Jesus, who isn't changing, who isn't walking away from us, but walked to the cross on our behalf. The one who actually conquered, 
a Savior that could have gone the easy route, that didn't have to give up his life, but instead he endured on your behalf, on our behalf, on our neighbor's behalf. He took the hard route because it was the right route for us. He gave up what was convenient. He gave up what was likable. He gave up what everyone agreed with and everyone was okay with in order to do God's will. He went to the cross. Because for him, it was love on his heart. It wasn't the idea of compromise. It wasn't giving in. It wasn't being this king who was adored here on earth. It was being the king of kings who would conquer sin and death and Satan so that we could be the sons and daughters. This is Jesus, and this is why, what he offers because he has conquered. He gives us new life and a new name who sustains us all the way until we will see him face to face, the bread of life, the true manna, the one who has conquered and who invites us to now sit at the table and feast with him in eternity. So church, let us never compromise what we believe Let us never compromise this word, even though it's tempting. Let us never compromise the gospel. Let us stand firm, holding fast to Christ, the one who is conquered, the king who is coming again.